Welcome back to the Librarian Linkover Podcast. I am your host, Laureen Kennard. Many of my previous guests have backgrounds in reference, tech services, leadership, or other adult-type things. Today, my guest is going to talk about an area of librarianship that we might think of as belonging in the children's department, but is actually completely transferable to operations in any field. Dr. Kate McDowell is Associate Professor at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign School of Information Sciences. Her presentations and writings bring together the tools of storytelling from library and information science with many areas, including fundraising, career preparation, and public service. Dr. McDowell, welcome to the Librarian Linkover. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. So tell us what courses you teach and talk a little bit about other responsibilities or projects you have as an associate professor, like committees, writing, speaking, meetings, et cetera. So uh, I work sometimes as an accreditor um, serving for the American Library Association. And in that capacity, I've learned a lot about what professor jobs are like. They always involve teaching, research, and service. Teaching is what people are familiar with. You see us in the classroom, but it's only, you know, maybe three to 10, maybe 12 hours a week. So people always wonder, what do you, what do, you do with the other, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes 30 hours? And the answer mm-hmm. is mostly research. And also what I learned when I was on an accreditation visit is professors are a little bit like independent contractors with a university. We are supposed to be generating new, hopefully useful, or or at least provocatively um, informative <laughs> knowledge, right? That will that will pave the way toward future uses that we can't see yet. But I focus very much on useful knowledge, things that translate practically from my storytelling courses to areas like data storytelling, to storytelling your career for job purposes, and all the way to what I'll talk about a little bit later, this project, the Data Storytelling Toolkit for Librarians. So the job um, keeps me busy. I don't think, I don't take any days off really, not fully, um, and mm-hmm. and I love it. And I'm I'm so grateful to be in that kind of position. Um, but yeah, we, today, for example, in the last week of a semester, I have meetings every hour on the hour all day long for three days in a row. So sometimes people think classes are over, that professors are relaxing. And I would love that to be more the case than it is at a moment like this. Um, We we tend to be busy, driven people who have knowledge we want to bring into the world for, um, for good, we hope, for social good. That's really the goal. Yeah. So much for my plan to keep you all day talking about these things. You have another meeting to go to. (laughs) So how did you get interested in storytelling and why is it important to be studied and discussed? Well, I did my master's of science, uh, master of science in library and information science from 1997 to 1999. And I took a storytelling class with Janice Del Negro, who's at Dominican University. And then later I audited a storytelling class with Betsy Hearn, who was the long-term, actually Janice and Betsy both were directors of the Center for Children's Books. Um, I'm still at the University of Illinois. They have not let me leave. I've sometimes (laughs) tried. Um, (laughs) It's been a great honor and honestly, kind of a lot to live up to, to be working at the program where uh, where I learned, where I now teach. Um, So I got interested because I got to take a class in it. And that was so eye-opening to me. What I saw was not only did we have 
this incredible tradition of storytelling within librarianship, not as a matter of branding or marketing or making us um, famous in some way, but as a matter of promoting our collections, as a matter of connecting with our communities, as a matter of being part of a process of creating a public space and story brings everybody in. So that um, that's why I got interested in storytelling. And there's so many reasons why I think it's important. I think right now in a world rife with complex dynamics of misinformation and disinformation, um, the way I like to say it is a lot of my colleagues were shocked by some of those dynamics in 2016 and 2020. And I was not because I've taught, mm -hmm. uh, because I've presented story hours to three-year-olds. And so I understand that human confabulation as a process of storytelling is actually normal. And it's it's a part of being human. It's not um, it's not something outside of the norm. It's not necessarily, it can be used for evil, but it's not necessarily evil, wrong, or bad to believe something that isn't true. It's a matter of um, keeping that story going and talking about what is true and isn't true, just like I did with those three-year-olds and those 90-person story hours, and just like we do every day in the classroom with our wonderful undergraduate and graduate students who are adult learners, you know, who are finding their way and, and sometimes coming back in their careers and finding their way um, through these very thorny topics. I think storytelling is an underutilized and possibly very important lens for thinking about information dynamics today. Well, and I was in library school at the same time you were, and I believe I had six required courses and then six electives, but I think now there are less required. So that's good so that students can take a little more classes that they may not have thought they wanted to take. So then yeah. they may find something like storytelling that they didn't know they had an interest in. Yeah, and just to pitch for my own school, since I am a professor at the University of <laughs> Illinois School of Information Sciences, we have never had more than two required courses. And wow. I, it is a very important um, commitment that we've made to be able to offer a wide variety of electives. We have um, many incredibly talented adjuncts at um, Library of Congress, Princeton here at the University of Illinois, where we have the largest collection outside of, I believe, Harvard in the in the continental United States. Um, so, so yeah, that is that is something to um, something to know if if folks listening might be interested in a library school experience. Um, in 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 our case, a Master of Science in Library and Information Science. We offer flexibility and high levels of practitioner expertise, both in the degree that we provide. So, yeah. Good to know. Good to know for anyone out there thinking about library school. So tell us about the Storytelling at Work project. Yeah, so um, back in about 2014, as I was moving into a temporary administrative position as the assistant dean for student affairs, uh, I needed a project that I could keep going with in my research while I was also managing large numbers of staff and a big a big production and doing a lot of reorganizing of that of that unit. And what I did was I set up a protocol where I could interview people about how they use storytelling in their work. And so far, I've interviewed 90 people across all kinds of information professions based mostly on where our students go. So I am pri primarily and predominantly interested in librarians and they are by far the bulk of who I've interviewed, but I've followed my students' interests and sometimes they go become um, 
taxonomists at a, mm -hmm. a startup organization doing online uh, taxonomies and you know the ontologies behind the taxonomies that allow for those classifications to be made for new kinds of spaces. Um, sometimes they go into search engine marketing, and mm -hmm. you know, and then I learn from them. So I um, I have really enjoyed that project, and it was the launch of a lot of my thinking about, and some of the things you care about too, Lorraine, about the transferability of the skills that we have as librarians. When I talked with 90 different people, <laughs> I found they were using storytelling in um, not quite 90 different ways, but it took many interviews to reach a set, if you know qualitative research, to reach a saturation point with this topic. Um, I have reached that now, I believe, and I've submitted this paper to, um, the uh, ACES conference in London in the fall. So fingers crossed that that will get to go forward. Yeah. Good luck with that. Thanks. So what is the data storytelling kit? I'm sorry, data storytelling toolkit for libraries. So this was an outgrowth of that storytelling at work project. What I realized after I had so many people tell me how they use storytelling is that a lot of people struggle to bring data and it's factual nature and its representation, its effective representation together with story, which people think of as make-believe or made up or fantasy. But really story is how we remember most of what we remember. If you think about most of the important events in your life, you recall them in the form of a story of what happened, of you know when, when someone was born, when someone passed away, when a partnership came together or fell apart. All of these things are stories. Um, and I felt that the same aspects of storytelling that I'd begun to teach in my courses, and at this point, um, when I submitted the grant, I had already been teaching for 12 years. So 12 years of storytelling, I've done, let's see, now I've done 15 years of teaching storytelling, eight years of storytelling consulting, and six years of teaching data storytelling. So out of those wow. courses came the idea for let's build a toolkit so that libraries aren't all alone individually trying to figure out how to use their their data to advocate to get resources to get um to get attention for the things they're already doing you know all kinds of library advocacy can be done through the data that we're already collecting i'll be presenting on june 24th um saturday morning in chicago um, at the American Library Association conference on this data storytelling toolkit for librarians, which is a planning grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services, so our major national funding agency, that um, is, is seeking to build a create and explore toolkit. But we're starting with the create side where you walk through, you think about, okay, what's my argument? Am I trying to, for example, transform something or am I trying to sustain something, right? So transformation or continuity could be two ways of thinking about what narrative tells us, what it means. Should we be changing? Should we be staying the same? In, despite difficult circumstances like a pandemic, for instance, right? Um, and then you have things like, okay, what's your, what's your evidence that you bring to this argument, right? So there's gonna be some evidence there and some of it will be in very clear data forms and spreadsheets, um, other things might, or maybe from dashboards that you get through something like the Public Library Association's um, tool benchmark or, out, or, or a project outcome. Um, but having the data is not always enough to craft the story. So the next thing we talk about is what's the, what's the, what's the narrative driver of your story? And I use three coming from narratology. I talk about continuity, staying the same despite challenges, I talk about transformation, 
what do we need to do to be better? And I talk about discovery. What do we need to do to know what we don't know yet? So if we're talking about something like understanding the real needs of our community or serving the real needs of our community, there's very likely to be a discovery narrative that's needed. We don't we don't usually take enough time for these kinds of narratives, but they, they have to happen before the advocacy narrative can go on. We have to have the data <laughs> that we've discovered through a process. And sometimes we have to communicate to boards, city councils, hey, we're looking into that. Here's how we're looking into that. Here's the systematic way that we're approaching understanding the real needs of our community. And next year, you can expect our budget to be based on what we found, right? Things, mm -hmm. things like that. So the toolkit brings together all of those things in a sequential order. It's sort of a choose your own adventure for libraries. And what <laughs> results is a story guide so that at the end of walking through the toolkit, and we have a basic demo on our website right now, but it's not, it's not really ready for full public consumption. We'll have a better one available by um, by the ALA uh, presentation. But the concept is we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel around mm -hmm. data storytelling for libraries in terms of advocacy. We can actually look for patterns. We can look for, it's funny, I just talked about my colleagues who have these ontologies. It is a kind of ontology behind storytelling, right? It's um, And all of this is based on about three years of qualitative research. Um, when I did the first webinar for this data storytelling toolkit for libraries, libraries project last fall on September 30th, we had 681 people register. So wow. So we know people need this, right? We know they're longing for this. And our aim um, with the planning grant is to is to create a workable toolkit that anyone can use for for free, freely available, anyone can use to explore the concepts behind the things that they need to put a story together. I couldn't possibly tell all the world's stories for them, right? I know that as a storytelling professor, I don't tell the stories mostly in my classes. I tell a few stories and then I just listen, but I've been listening now for years <laughs> in, in terms of thinking about what my students care about in libraries, what my colleagues care about in libraries. Um, and I tend to work um, a little bit differently than other people. I'm very creative. I always have been. <laughs> and so taking what I know about storytelling and bringing it to work for libraries is sort of like taking all this consulting work I've done with, um, oh, everybody from the state library organization here, Carly Academic Research Libraries in Illinois, um, the consortium to um, the World Health Organization in recent years. I've been a, a consulting storyteller for them um, thinking about, but in all these cases, I'm thinking about not what story should you tell. I don't know that for you or anyone. What I know is what are the story strategies that you could use? What are the narrative structures that you could borrow so that you can do what story does best which is to take the information you have to present and make that information interweave with emotion so that people can remember what you said. The best stories are not just tellable, they're retellable. It's not a matter of whether or not we express it perfectly in the moment. It's a matter of whether someone else can retell our story. I'm reading a biography of Walt Disney and not only was he innovative in cartoons and animation, but he was one of the first that had his characters telling stories. Yeah, it wasn't just gag, gag, get like joke, joke, laugh. It was actual characters telling stories, and that's what kind of set him apart. Then, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, no, that's. I think it's a great example of where 
where and why considering story, and I've written about this as a fundamental form of information. I, do, I think story is a fundamental form of information and we've overlooked it because we've considered it entertaining rather than informative. Um, simply because it's also emotional, but things that are emotional <laughs> are also informative. So, yeah. Sure. yeah. How can we use storytelling in our workplaces? Yeah. So one of the things that was so great about the Storytelling at Work project was that I learned so many different ways. I learned about things like um, podcasts for marketing, uh, websites, using social media as a way of putting stories forward. Uh, there are so there are so many ways like that. What I have focused on is storytelling as advocacy because I think wherever we are in our workplaces, we need to be advocating um, for ourselves and our jobs, mm -hmm. for our for our values, mm -hmm. right? For our values yep. and the roles that we have, right? For um, we need to be advocating for what the library is and means to the community. To the community. And those are never, those conversations are never done. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there's a, there's actually a wonderful, a wonderful book by Timothy Snyder um, called On Tyranny. It's 20 lessons from the 20th century. And as we find restrictions uh, that, that are being navigated by government agencies and sometimes being put in place by legislators. One of the questions I think that libraries are going to be, if they're not already asking themselves, is what are we advocating for when it comes to freedom? What does freedom mean in relation to libraries? Um, so I think we're needing to use storytelling in our workplaces more than ever before and storytelling about our workplaces and storytelling that and then also I'll say one other way, another way we can use storytelling is just like I just told you a story about my work and how I learned at this, this site visit elsewhere that, you know, professors really are kind of independent contractors. We're supposed to just generate this research, right? And, and that's not what people think of us as doing. They see us in the classrooms. They think that's our main role. But in some ways, our main role is actually about knowledge and creating things like the data storytelling toolkit for librarians, mm -hmm. or like make, making new things. Um, and so that one way we can use storytelling in our workplaces or even maybe beyond our workplaces as librarians is to really think about what's behind the scenes and which part of what's behind the scenes resonates with the values that, that are central to our public spaces, central to our communities, and how can we find a way to, to make more space for more um, kindness, compassion, and tolerance in part, um, but also more space simply for people to understand what happens in a library by, uh, by telling some of those stories. And yeah, so I think there's a lot, the uses might be endless. Um, the, the stresses are time, right? So the qualitative research I've done, the stresses are fear of data. People get afraid that they don't, that data will harm them because data has been used to harm us. So I think we have to be real about that. Um, and we have to get a little cool-headed around approaching the data, it's tough. Um, then there's fear of story. People really fear telling the story wrong or, um, and this is why I think retellability is so important. You want your story to be able to be retold. Well, how do you find that out? Well, you tell it to somebody in your workplace and ask them to tell you back what they heard, right? <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's really nice idea. 
yeah, it's a low, it, it's, it's a low hanging fruit. We're all right there trying to communicate these things, but that can feel awkward. So, you know, getting people more comfortable with the idea that we need to be using storytelling in our workplaces is a key part of the answer as well. The last thing I'll say about using storytelling in our workplaces is we often think about um, the successes of the library as the story we want to tell. But from my research, what I can say is that I think part of why we're afraid of stories sometimes is we aren't always using the right narrative strategies. So for example, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey narrative is a really fantastic narrative. His research was on the major religious figures of the world, and he brought together a story template that he called universal. It isn't universal. And when we try to apply it to libraries, it usually backfires because libraries are not the great religious figures of the world. And you know what? Neither are we. <laughs> and that's part of why it backfires, right? <laughs> we, we are not the... We, we are not necessarily the heroes and our libraries don't have to be the heroes. There are other narrative structures. There are structures like continuity, right? We're gonna, this comes from Svetan Todorov's work. We're gonna sustain despite major disruption. We're gonna hold on to what we've accomplished and we're gonna make sure we don't lose ground. That's a continuity narrative. There are narratives like discovery. We're in a new world. It's it's <laughs> someplace into a pandemic that started in 2020. I don't know whether to say, you know, post or during, right? We're in this new world. And that is a matter of a fresh look at discovering what do communities need from libraries in this moment, in this time. And that discovery narrative comes out of Roland Barthes' work um, from a, a neurotologist. So Svetan Todorov is from Russian, from <laughs> Svetan Todorov is from Russia, Roland Barthes is from France. And Barthes' work, um, he, he just about blew up literary theory by taking narratives and breaking them down into five codes. But one of those codes, the hermeneutic or enigma code, is really about creating suspense in a story. And in order to have a discovery narrative, we have a question, we have an uncertainty, we have a longing to know something, we create suspense. And then we move that into a narrative where we begin to present information, where we brought the audience along with us in the mystery. So there are many kinds of narratives that can be, narrative strategies, I would say, that can be used in our workplaces, especially if we remember that the library is mostly the hero to us and less to other people. So we can, if we can reframe that and think about the people we serve as being the heroes, and then also add some different narrative strategies, I think um, we will be able to use storytelling better in our, in our libraries. Yeah. That's really great. So switching gears a little bit, uh, many people are job hunting. So how can we use storytelling to find a job or advance our careers? Yeah, this is such a great question. So I have a whole workshop called Storytelling Your Career and there's hey. <laughs> really available online, but I'll give a few tips on this. I um, can put a link in the show notes. Fabulous, I'll send that link to you. Okay. So, so the thing about um, storytelling and a career process is that it's, we're always at some point in the narrative. It's, it's, not, it's not over till we're, till we're done, right? Like, so, so it feels like you don't have a story to tell when you're early on, but you do. At that point, you have a story to tell about values and ambition. And it feels like you don't have a story to tell when you're in the middle, but you do. You have a story about accomplishments and how those are gonna work going forward. So I like to think of this as breaking down into really concrete things. Like the cover letter fundamentally is a romance narrative. It should be a sense of, I see you with your lovely job. Let me tell you about me with my lovely skills. 
and let's create a long-term relationship here. Let's make a connection, right? Because nobody wants a job to be for six months, right? We're talking about a long-term thing. So I think a cover letter can really be a lot better and a lot more intriguing if you if you think about what is the what is the narrative behind that? What is the story feeling behind that cover letter? It's much easier to write too. When people get out of their heads about having to list everything, suddenly the romance makes it clear, right? I, I wanna I wanna connect. And that's what the cover letter is about. <laughs> yeah, the resume is kind of, I would say this is the closest to your hero's journey, right? The resume is the obstacles and how you've overcome them. You know, it, the resume is that list of accomplishments and, and yet the thing we miss sometimes is that we have to list everything. We write our resumes, we have to list everything. It can be really helpful to have someone else read the resume from the standpoint of what story does this tell me? Because that is, there's always a narrative in a resume. People are looking to see, okay, where, when, how, why, what, you know, well, how did this thing lead to this thing? How did this thing lead to this thing? Um, and, and that's, listen, most of us at some point have had major disruptions in our life. If you haven't, you're a very lucky person indeed. So some of that, you know, with the resume is thinking about how to frame um, wh where one thing does connect to another and, and being, being confident about the idea that everybody has some disconnects here and there. There are no perfect people, just like there are no perfect resumes. There are no angels among us. We are just humans doing our best. And so I think looking at the resume as something that implicitly conveys a narrative can help you in a, if you're if you're gentle with yourself can help a person to um, think about okay what narrative do I want this to convey and boy makes it so much easier to select down from all the possible bullet points you could list under any job heading and under any job title if you think about what's the narrative that it conveys because then you can shape those to connect and it doesn't have to be comprehensive but it's it's I would say it's more important that it be comprehensible than it be comprehensive so that's another way to think um, and last but not least I talk to my students about reverse engineering the interview. So the interview is this question and answer. And we think of the interviewer as asking the questions and the interviewee as answering the questions. But there's some problems with that if we take it too literally, because culturally, that's not exactly how it works. For example, if somebody says to you, why do you want this job? You never give the answer for the money, even though it's true. <laughs> it's literally the truest answer but it's not culturally what we're doing in that moment. What we're doing in that moment is a story. And so when someone says, why do you want this job? You're responding with, you know, it seems to me to connect with these things I've done in the past. And I wonder if it might not have these possibilities for the future. And so that's, that's how we respond to those kinds of questions. I talk with them about thinking in terms of the stories they want to tell. So a, a good interview, if you've done your job as an interviewee, you have answered the questions, yes, but you haven't answered them with only the literal information any more, you know, any more than it, none, none of the questions asked should be answered with only the literal information. Everyone, if you can, should try to work in a story of something that you accomplished mm -hmm. before. So as you work in a story of what you accomplished before, how do you do that? Well, you got to prep that. I mean, that takes time. I have a Google document with like 20 stories from my career. And every time I've been asked to interview, I go back and look and try to remember what did I do well on a given Tuesday morning? I may not remember what I did well ever, right? But, mm -hmm. but I, can, I can get there if I've kept my list of stories. So if you think of working on your repertoire of stories, not as a matter of um, 
just being ready for interviews, but as a matter of being, you're actually bringing the content. The content is your stories. The content is what you have accomplished and what you care about because the stories show how you care about that and why you're going to be good at doing it again, right? They, that's, that's what they show. So, um, so those are the key pieces, resume, the cover letter as a romance, resume itself as a kind of narrative. And then remember that an interview is really a storytelling opportunity. That's really what it is. And you can tell that if you think through the mechanics of an interview, and it's part of why it can seem so, so difficult to, to get through that. Um, but yeah, so those are, those are a few things about career and job hunting and advice for how to, how to move your career forward that um, I've been sharing with my students now for years and, and really have, have seen some good results from these approaches. I will tell you, Lorraine, if nothing else, I think my approaches take off some of the weight, some of the mm -hmm. heaviness and invite us back into something we know which is we all know how to play with story. We do it in our minds. We do it in our journals. We do it in our dreams. We can do it in our jobs too. I think that's a really good perspective for job hunting and interviewing. So besides current events, what kinds of questions do your students ask about the profession in general? I'm always curious to know what students are thinking. Yeah, this is, this is such a great question. Um, so my students cut across a, a number of different professional areas, even within the LIS degree. Um, so I would say what they ask me has to do with, um, they, they kind of imagine that there's going to be a set of duties in a job and they wanna ask how to, they ask me how to do those well, right? So they, they have in their minds a pre, a prefabricated librarian. Often for our students, um, we've often asked them to interview a librarian before they come into the program. So they've talked with someone about their job and now they're thinking, okay, they wanna know how can I do this piece well? How can I do that piece well? Um, and that's great. Like you, you definitely wanna have skills. I mean, everybody wants to have skills, but um, I often challenge them back to think even more deeply about synthesizing those skills because librarianship is a lifelong learning profession mm -hmm. we we support that in others we we model that ourselves and that's where i you know often students imagine um sometimes because of where they are in their lives that they're going to get the job and the job is kind of the end point or maybe it's one of several mm -hmm. endpoints. but at any rate it's kind of an accumulation like a video game like you're accumulating points and then you get to the next level and you accumulate points you get to the next level and it's not like we don't accumulate skills and get to the next level and things we, we do it's just that there's also kind of a holistic um frame around that that is about um what's meaningful about the profession Right now, we see a lot of students who are very into uh, public, academic, um, community college, um, librarianship that is far away from the corporate sector. Um, and that's interesting to me because it used to be more of a mix in that way. Yeah, uh, our corporate relations people get a little frustrated because they can't get library school students to imagine that they might have um, an information job in another area. Um, and so, so I'm curious about that right now. At the same time, I do see that 
there's a way in which um, in a world that is nothing but making yourself a brand, especially on social media, mm -hmm. our students are so inspiring to me in that they still know the phrase sell out <laughs> and they don't want <laughs> to do it. <laughs> so I would say um, those are some of the things that I that I am so interested in about our students and how they how they think about things. Um, yeah, so, and, and to be honest, I'm always curious too, right? I mean, the, the way I answer the question is to say, here are some of the, the patterns I've seen, but they are always thinking new things and I'm always listening to them. <laughs> so That's it's great, of, it's good to know. Yeah, the beauty of teaching storytelling is that at least a quarter of my, each of my classes is just me listening to them. So it's great. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So if you were teaching a library school course on storytelling, what are a couple of projects you would assign your students? Yeah, so I do teach this course and I make them tell four stories. The first three are in person live and that's either Zoom if it's online or and we and we used to do it over the phone and back in the old days. I've taught this since 2003. Um, so so the first three are live stories. The fourth one is a digital story where you get to synthesize what you know and have some more, um, get to do some more work crafting that story without the, the complex excitement, but also for some people to be perfectly respectful, the disruption of an audience, right? Some people really want that time to craft. So the first three, what does it look like? Well, first story has to be folklore. And in dealing with folklore, we have to talk about our identities, cultural identities, where stories come from, to whom they belong, to whom they do not belong, whether or not we should be telling a particular story. Um, and this is part of my ongoing research um, with Dr. Nicole Cook at the University of South Carolina. She and I have written a um, social justice storytelling article that came out in Library Quarterly last fall. And our next article will be about whose story is it to tell? So we begin with folklore, but we, get, we begin with it not from a... Um, imperialist, colonialist perspective, uh, we begin with a perspective of, okay, who who really is, is to be telling these stories? At the same time, I am not, I'm a teacher, I'm not my students. And the boundary there means that I can't tell them exactly what they should or shouldn't be telling. And I don't know all of their backgrounds and I shouldn't presume to. So uh, I listen to them when they tell me what they should or shouldn't be telling. The second story can be anything from any source other than personal experience and includes folklore again. So if somebody has fallen in love with folklore, they can tell another folktale. If they have fallen in love with a movie and they want to find a way to retell that plot, we are covered under fair use. We don't, we're not, we're not recording this. This is live in class. They can try that out. They can tell the whole narrative of a novel, of a movie, anything that they love. My goal there is to get them connecting with something that they love. The third opportunity is any of the above, folklore, any narrative in the world, up to and including a personal story. I don't let students tell personal stories right away. Um, partly it makes them way too vulnerable, especially in an, in an environment where I work for the University of Illinois. I don't actually, you know, I've worked here a long time. I come from New College of Florida, which is a place that's being uh, dismantled right mm -hmm. now as a public education institution mm -hmm. by Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. Um, that college was an incredible experience because I was allowed to create my own curriculum and we did not have grades. We had something much harder. We had written assessments of everything you had and hadn't learned from that faculty member. So um, I save personal stories for the end in part because they can be, as I, you know, they can be controversial. <laughs> they can touch on things that are very near and dear to a person. 
Um, my experience of being an alum of New College of Florida during this time has been about helping my peers and in some cases my seniors, uh, my 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 you know much much senior colleagues. Um, my former advisor went on to be provost. I was very honored to um, review the op-ed that he wrote before it went out. Um, so, so I don't tell that story uh, the first day of class <laughs> mm -hmm. because it's intense and emotional. Even though I'm containing my emotions right now, I'm sure you can imagine watching a beloved institution be dismantled mm -hmm. um, publicly is quite distressing, especially when the uh, the people dismantling it are stereotyping the institution based on rumors, hearsay, and uh, negative stereotypes of people rather than on the facts of the institution. Um, so data storytelling, how, how important it is, how very important it is. So when I teach a, a course on storytelling, I'm trying to help my students get to a place where they can do some of the things that I just shared with you. They can tell something about their personal experience without it overwhelming them without it becoming um, a process of something that I don't know how to do, which is narrative in therapy or other therapeutic contexts. Um, I have deep respect for that, but I'm a library storyteller. <laughs> so I'm all about connecting with the community. And that means, and this is what I learned from Janice Del Negro and Betsy Hearn both, that means that the storyteller has to have emotional control over the story, no matter how emotionally difficult it is. We are guiding the listeners, they should not be put in a position of feeling that they have to stop and support us because we have because we have fallen apart not in a library story hour and not not for what libraries are supposed to represent in terms of a public space of safety um and relative safety i guess i should say but mm -hmm. but yeah, trying trying to be that for our communities certainly so yeah so that's kind of how i assign the projects it's a, a walk through the process of story. Oh, and each project, the first one, it's just stand and tell with no notes. The second one, stand and tell with no notes again. The third one, they can add digital visual aids. And I let them retell any of those first three for their final digital story. And there are a few other written assignments beside where they um, go into some research about folklore, go into some uh, reflection on what kinds of stories would they like to tell in the future. They create a file uh, of their future stories that they might tell and how they might bring those stories to life for various audiences. So my storytelling students leave with experience telling stories, a, di a digital story they can share with somebody and a portfolio of stories that they could potentially tell in the future. That's great. So if a librarian is considering getting a PhD to study a topic in our field, what advice would you give? It's such an interesting path. Um, I would say talk to a professor before you la launch into a PhD. <laughs> Sometimes people go into PhDs because they really want to do more of the good feeling that is school. And a PhD um, is different. It is a place where you're going to make your research mark on the world and you're going to take um, you're going to take a topic, you're going to research it so deeply that you leave the world different than how you found it, because you will be contributing new knowledge to that field. However small, however modest, um, when I first did a PhD, I studied the history of librarianship initially, um, partly because I was very inspired by my advisor, um, Boyd Rayward, and also by Christine Jenkins, who was here at the University of Illinois for many years. And they, um, I learned from them to go to the archive and actually look at the materials and try to understand the history of librarianship from that perspective. 
What I found was extraordinary, and I published about this in Library Quarterly in 2009. What I found was that women in the 1900s, when they were the 80% minority, they were 20% of the field, 80% was men, they were by far the minority, were the first to do systematic research in the field. And not only that, through a series of national surveys, the reading of the young surveys from 1882 to 1898, they also changed the discourse of the field. If you look at American Library Association meetings before that time, ALA was founded in 1876. Before that time and after that time of 1898, the reports that were done begin to use national survey methods just like these women did. So it is so exciting to get to do historical research on libraries. And um, if you're thinking about getting a PhD to study a topic in our field, I think it's important to think about how that work is going to transfer into a long research career. So the way, when I described to you my initial research as a student, I'm still looking at that same information in data storytelling for libraries, right? Really? I'm actually still thinking about what do we know from national surveys now contemporary that have been, you know, long histories to the IMLS and PLA and other organizations. But what do we know about those surveys that are rooted in that 19th century tradition that we can use to understand what libraries can and should be doing today? So whatever you choose to do in terms of your topic for your field and your PhD, I think it's really important to think about transferability. Um, the other things that come with a PhD, I always like to say, passion and purpose. Passion is a given. If you don't think you want to hang around and study and write things for years, probably a PhD is not a great idea. It's just not. <laughs> you, If you like interacting with people more than writing, um, probably not your best career path. It's just not. It's just how it goes. So that's good to think about. What is that passion what does that passion look like for you? Are you really willing to commit to the hours and hours that it takes to do archival research or survey research or qualitative research or statistical research or you know any kind of invention of knowledge that you that you would care to to find? The one thing about information schools and and I'm part of the information schools consortium and I'm actually one of the co-chairs of the international qualitative research group. Um, is that the topics are so broad. <laughs> if you're interested in anything about information, you could do that at, in a PhD in our field. And that is really um, an extraordinary time. That's, that's an extraordinary opportunity. Um, the other thing is purpose. And when I say purpose, I mean, what job do you wanna get at the end of the PhD? Because if you don't have a specific job, that you're aiming for. And frankly, there are very few jobs that require a PhD. In my last count, only 6% of people in the US have PhDs and also about 50% of people drop out of PhD programs. Um, not so much at our program because we are number one ranked through our LIS program and we have very, very good funding, um, but we still do have some great students who drop out of the PhD when they realize they just don't wanna be a faculty member. Now that they know what it's like, now that they understand mm -hmm. that you have to, um, produce new knowledge all the time and be constantly writing things that are pretty harshly critiqued by your first and second reviewers when you send them out. And uh, um, and that happens twice before any article ever sees the light of day. It goes, goes through review process. Mm -hmm. Writing books is even worse. Um, it's, it's even more. Um, I'm working on a book right now, at least the beginning of a book proposal that I've just sent to ALA Editions um, on critical data storytelling for libraries, where I would bring together some of the ideas about how communities can and should be represented in data critically, 
um, so that we don't reproduce stereotypes and bias in the data in relation to communities so that we can do effective data storytelling for libraries. So it's stepping even a step back from the toolkit and thinking, okay, not just what can we do, but what should we be doing? What, what does create, um, it, from a critical standpoint, and criticality simply means, and we may have heard the, the term uh, much maligned lately, but criticality simply means being willing to critique in order to try to make something better. Mm -hmm. It is the difference between standing back and throwing stones at something that you don't like because you don't like it and trying to tear it down versus investing and saying, I'm gonna bring a critical lens and I'm gonna stand up for what I think could be better here. Um, so, so I would advise somebody thinking about getting a PhD to really consider the, the day-to-day -day life, that purpose. Um, are you willing to do what it takes to do research for probably the rest of your life? Um, and your, so your passion, I would say, what you're willing to do research the rest of your life and your purpose, what job do you want to get? Because if you don't need something out of a PhD, it's really not a very fun recreational experience. It's pretty hard. <laughs> I wouldn't think it would be. Yeah. <laughs> I think some people come thinking, I just love school and I want to do more. And it's, it's a different level of school. It's a school where you are now supposed to become the expert. And if you're willing to make that transformative leap, it's a wonderful path. And I would invite anyone to consider that wonderful path for sure. But it's good to have some caveats because it can look, it can, I people idealize the profession of professor and imagine that there's downtime. I have less downtime in this job than I ever had as a public librarian. And you know what that means. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So why did you go to library school? And is that reasoning still hold? Yeah, it does. I went to library school because I couldn't figure out how to specialize in anything. And as you've heard already, um, I have not had to specialize. I've been able to be a generalist. Now I'm a, a researcher who studies communications processes through story and storytelling. You know, now I'm a researcher who writes theory about why story is a fundamental information form and why storytelling is a fundamental circulation um, dynamic of information. Um, and and so I haven't had to. Um, I have, you know, it's in a way I've deeply specialized, but I haven't had to cut anything out <laughs> of my way of thinking. And that was tremendously appealing to me. That was tremendously appealing to me from the very beginning. Um, and I went to library school the minute I understood there was such a thing as a children's librarian. And what I couldn't articulate in that moment that I've learned how to say better later was that I was the guest star in people's lives. I didn't have to be legally in loco parentis. I didn't have to be um, the person in charge of how these children would do on a test. I could be the person who was supplementing their lives. I could be the guest star. I could be an extra person in their in their worlds. And I, I, later I came across some research um, that I've taught since then about what it takes for children to survive difficult circumstances. And one of the things that it takes is at least one interested adult outside of a home situation that might be difficult um, to take an interest in them and to, and to show that they value them and to show that um, their life matters and has, and has meaning. And that's what I believe children's librarians do when they treat young people with uh, the kind of dignity and respect that um, children's librarians do when they see children as whole people at every age, no matter how young. Um, that is, it is really something important. It's that, very underrated. It's way underrated. And it's, you know, it's way, it's, it's something that needs to be considered as, it's not a soft skill. 
to do that. It's, no. it's a hard skill. <laughs> and so, um, and it's based on data, right? Children actually are whole people at every moment of their development. We know this. If you research children, <laughs> you understand they may have different reasoning than adults, but they have reasoning um, and they can use it. And they also have emotions just like adults and they, and they experience them. And so all of those things really matter. So yeah, it pretty much has held up to, to today. Um, although in such different ways, as you can hear, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm still interested in whole people. I'm still interested in information and emotion together. I'm still interested in the history and present of how we know what our field is about and especially libraries. How do we know what libraries are doing and should be doing? Um, how do we know who's, uh, and I, I guess I, I also came to library school with something of an activist perspective. I wanted to know who was left out and I wanted to make sure that nobody was left out. And that I'm still doing that work to this very day in my in my career and in my in every class I ever teach, you know, the, the goal is that no learner is left out in that space. That's really it. Yeah. That's great. Well, this has been really great today. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank Lori. you to Kate McDowell for being oh, sorry. Thank you to Kate McDowell for being my guest today on the Librarian Linkover. Thank you to my listeners who've been so supportive since I started this podcast over two years ago. Let me know what you think. I love hearing how valuable you are finding the content that my guests and I are creating. Please comment on the episodes on thelibrarianlinkover.com or on social media at LibLinkover on Twitter or the Librarian Linkover on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening.